1928 at Sewer de Mont Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The WERU Farm Fresh Live Radio Auction sprouted on June 6th call in to bid on 53 items donated by 46 farms, markets, fisher folk, and food producers. Johnny Selected Seeds is the auction sponsor, and all proceeds benefit WERU Community Radio. Everything is described and listed in bidding order at www.weru.org. A season of fresh local foods is waiting for your bids during the WERU Farm Fresh Live Radio Auction. On air Thursday, June 6th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at maineboats.com. It's 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today we have a special guest, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Uh, thank you, Kirk, for taking the time out of your busy schedule for, for joining us. You're welcome, Donna. Thank you. Um, you know, what I'd really like to talk about today... Um, is uh, the economic uh, state of the Penobscot Nation. And, and I, you know, you've been a, a chief for a number of years now. And I, uh, t- how, how many years has that been, Kirk? Well, about seven now. Seven. Yep. Uh, so maybe you could just talk a little bit about the, the state of the economy of the tribe when you first started and how it is now, sort of build up to that. Sure. Um, First of all, thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. And um, I think, um, as is no big secret, back in 2006 when I ran for this position, uh, economic development, uh, I saw her as a critical component to the success of our tribe moving forward. Um, of course, our culture and traditions and sovereignty and jurisdiction and all of those things that are um, extremely challenging, but also um, very, very critical to our survival as well, all depend on, I think, the ability of, of a tribe to self-sustain. I think it's, it's not realistic to ask um, our people to um, come together and fight for um, the common good, if you will, um, when there's so many struggles going on in, in um in people's homes and in their personal lives to to try to um, maintain a level of support for, for their families. And I think that um, that self-sustainability as a government comes from, um, comes from our families. You know, governments, if truly made up of people, um, it's critical that they're doing well. And that is no um, secret that, or it's not a coincidence that um, when families are doing well and communities are doing well, governments do very well. And so there's a direct correlation there. So our focus was create opportunity and um, work towards self-reliance and self-sustainability for our nation. And um, that starts uh, with, again, the opportunity for our people. So what we did in 2006 was put a lot of time into this through our Section 17 Corporation, um, Penobscot Indian Nation Enterprises, to to um, focus on on a nation-building approach, and that was um, how can we leverage um, our various uh, statuses, whether that's tax statuses, whether it's um, our statuses in, in minority programs, and we really narrowed that down to um, working in the government contracting arena through the Native 8A program and focusing on alternative energy development. 
within the corporation. So um, that that took a while. It didn't happen overnight. Um, we worked with um, with a lot of uh, various organizations and looked at various models, separated models from tribal leadership. We looked at um, startups and and uh, chains and all kinds of things that um, showed various levels of success, why they succeeded, why they failed, but also looked at our past history as well. And um, we had a history kind of littered with um, some successes and uh, some failures. And and we looked at some of those glowing failures and, and tried to determine why those things happened. And, and many times um, it was simply bad decision-making just on um, on the fact that uh, there weren't a lot of expertise that came along with the, the businesses. Um, some some businesses failed, uh, lack of capital available and uh, bridge financing and all startups kind of need a boost at some point. And I think we ran into some trouble there. So we, we really wanted to um, make sure that whatever we were doing going forward that we weren't putting the tribe in jeopardy in terms of its... Uh, limited precious resources that are needed for so many needs so um so we really focused in that program that really allowed us to leverage our status and uh and we had some uh, internal expertise in that area so three three years of development or so um and uh obtained our native 8a status and um and really took off there and we were able to create jobs and uh an opportunity and revenue for the nation and also, um, the alternative uh, energy project really started to progress leaps and bounds, um, and actually very close to permitting that project right now. So we, um, so the revenue generators um, are there, and uh, the tribe has economically done very well. The opportunity for people has been there. Our unemployment rate um, in 2006 was in the high 30 percentile, according to our. Uh, best indicators and um, according to those same indicators now we're in the high teens so we've made progress um, still a very deplorable um, economic condition in terms of our unemployment rate you know um, one of the things that um, we know is that uh, through again multiple indicators but through a Wabanaki health assessment that uh, was one of the largest assessments done on Indian people east of the Mississippi, um, while focused on health care, really touched on a lot of socioeconomic conditions uh, within the tribe that could be root causes. You know, cycles of poverty cause a lot of problems. And so we, um, so we looked at that and, and found that there are huge disparities, not just in unemployment, but even among those folks that are working. And, um, you know, when we see reports that the average Maine citizen, over 50% of them um, that are working, make over $50,000 per year. And um, over 50% of uh, Penobscot people working are around $15,000 a year. It shows that we, um, we have people that want to work, um, that are out there trying, they're, they're struggling, they're, they're putting it in their time every day, and they're doing the very best they can. We have a responsibility now to um, make sure we're not only creating jobs, but creating good jobs and jobs that um, people can feel secure in and uh, make a good living in. And our people are really doing the work in terms of education. We're at our highest um, um, college education rates, um, graduation rates uh, that we've ever seen. Uh, I think this year we had over 120 students in uh, higher education and for a smaller community. I mean, that's that's a big deal. And so we're really excited about that our challenge as leaders has been has always been but will be um, Keeping up with that in terms of opportunity. So um, so we're very committed to that. We're doing multiple programs in uh, Workforce investment for example right now as we sit here we have tribal people training in uh, the construction trade where they go through a 50 week 52 week training course where we partnered with uh, folks like Eastern Maine Development Corporation, where they're getting everything from um, classroom math to how to use a table saw to a lot of different uh, uh, basics of, of um, how to be in the construction trade and also 
just learning how to exist in the workplace, um, how to promote themselves, how to be productive. And, um, and it's been a really good program. We, what it did tell us, though, in a while a very good program, it, it told us the, the enormous need. Um, we saw over triple the applications than positions we had available. Um, and we're going to stay committed and, and continuously improve on this program and, and bring in um, future groups of people through this as well. So, um, so the economic condition in 2006 was, um, I would just say, stagnant. I mean, we weren't, uh, weren't drowning, but we weren't, um, we weren't really progressing in that area either. And, and so we really felt like we had to stay committed to that. And I, again, I believe wholeheartedly that um, economic success, while not in terms of creating piles of money, money by itself doesn't mean a whole lot, um, but what it does mean for us as a tool and as a people to, um, to self-sustain and protect ourselves and to grow our government and to, um, and to do all those things, I think is, um, is critical to our future existence at a level that we want to be at. Now, when you uh, were making all these improvements and creating these, these programs and projects, um, what, do, what do you perceive as maybe some of the, uh, the barriers to accomplishing those things? Well... There are multiple barriers, and and I think for Indian tribes in general, there are, you know, as we talked about earlier, lack of capital, a lack of investment. Um, you know, I think the Treasury report uh, from 2003 showed a $44 billion um, gap in investment funding in Indian country. And what that tells you is that um, there's either a lack of understanding of the opportunity Due to the rural nature of Indian reservations and uh, lack of markets around them, um, a lot of um, variables go into that. And then you get into, um, unfortunately, the tribes of Maine deal with another level of obstacles in terms of um, how their jurisdictional um, sovereignty can be applied within their territories and uh, the challenges and intrusion that that often brings from um, various forms of, of government. And I think that um, for us, the challenge is always um, in our decision-making in terms of what our tribe sees as the vision, what our tribe sees as solutions. Uh, like all tribes, um, we have a long history of others making decisions for us and, um, and not necessarily working out the way that, uh, that the tribe would have envisioned it. So it's critical that our through self-determination and self-reliance that we are um, the autonomous decision-making authority when it comes to um, economic development or just flat-out community development or uh, nation-building within our own territory. And it's it's going to be critical to our success that we continue to fight for that. I think that has been the ongoing challenge in re- relying on other institutions to, um, to uh, help us meet our needs without an understanding of... Um, everything that goes into our decision-making. Yeah. Now, we, uh, in Maine, we have uh, the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, mm-hmm. which, which defines the relationship between the tribes and the state. Um, it's, it's, how do you view that, I, that uh, settlement act? Well, I, um, I view it in a couple of ways. One is um, I think that it had. I, I see the Settlement Act as a real lost opportunity. I think it was um, it was negotiated in good faith by the tribes. It was worked on as an enhancement tool for sovereignty. It was worked on as um, overcoming decades and centuries of of being wards of other governments and and of the state. Um, it's heralded in the Senate report as. Um, the tribes of Maine being forever free from state interference. It's, um, it, it, there's language in there that says what has happened before will never happen again. You know, so I think that um, it was people were in the right mindset of trying to create a government-to-government, sovereign-to-sovereign, jurisdictional framework 
for how we could overcome our concerns. Um, the problem is, is that when I say missed opportunity, I think we've gotten so far away from that good faith effort that, um, and when I say we, uh, I think um, the way that um, the Settlement Act has been interpreted by others has really eroded the intent of the document and has really gotten us to a place of um, utilizing that tool as just another um, kind of weapon in the chest to um, to continue the um, ongoing oversight of tribes and uh, encroachment and intrusion into our governmental affairs, encroachment on our lands that are so limited. You have to remember this was a um, 12 million acre land claim. This, this was no small issue. And um, today the tribes possess just a little bit under 200,000 acres. So we're a long ways from that 12 million acres. Um, and when I look at those statistics, um, you know, people will often say, well, you got all this money. Well, the, the federal government actually settled this land claims. And um, the state of Maine never contributed a dollar or an inch of land to this. So we, we did get money from the federal government to buy back those stolen lands. And those were deemed stolen, of course, on, based on um, illegal treaties that took those lands to begin with under the Non-Intercourse Act. So, so, we, um, so we're a long ways from where we started with that settlement. But even with the settlement, I think there was an understanding that uh, the tribes would uh, be able to structurally uh, maintain an autonomous government, as it always has. It would have been able to um, make its decisions autonomous, autonomously be able to legislate its issues through its tribal councils and through its people and um, and be able to move forward in a way that um, was most productive for our communities. But, um, but it's really turned into um, a very sour subject after over three decades of living under it. Yeah. Um, one of the things I always find sort of strange is that, uh, you know, we have a, a land quote and unquote land claims settlement and the land claim settlement is not solely about land it takes in all kinds of other uh situations and issues and inst just about anything you can think of to do mm -hmm. with the uh, ruling and, and regulating the tribes that's exactly right i think um well i say it was a missed opportunity um some people have within the crafting of that document and within its applicability over the years have really um, seized the opportunity. And I think that, and not in a good way, towards the tribes, and I, I think that you're absolutely right. You know, you see this all across the country, whether you're dealing with the Violence Against Women Act, whether you're dealing with um, the carcieri fix with land to trust, um, whether you're dealing with um, the federal recognition process of tribes, so much has to be compromised up front to um, pacify stakeholders or perceived stakeholders that you end up with a document that's very little about land and more about um, the jurisdiction and who's going to have authority over, like you say, almost every aspect of, uh, of our existence. So um, including in our land claims language that um, allows interference in our federal relationship. So it is, um, it, it's a document that was predicated on, a, on lands being taken and, um, and turned into something that um, has just allowed for more interference by outside uh, entities. Yeah, um, the, uh, what is it, the, 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 the FEMA, the emergency mm -hmm. bill, well, tell me about that situation. Well, um, the Stafford Act amendments came up in uh, what the Stafford Act is, is it allows, Stafford Act allows governors of states to um, declare emergencies within their states and directly to the federal government through the president. And they make those declarations and funding comes along with that. And there's a, a percentage, a 10% cost share uh, that goes along with that. So what FEMA did was in looking at the Stafford Act, they said we have to amend this based on multiple Supreme Court cases that 
um, talk about tribal sovereignty and their ability to control issues within their territories. And they said, we got to get the Stafford Act in line with tribes. So um, and a lot of things brought this to the attention of the federal government, like um, 17, 18, 19 hour response lags in places like Washington State when um, when the Yakima Reservation had wildfires and lost, in that lag in response time, they lost dozens of homes and over 50 lives. So um, so this really brought to, to light the need for tribal governments through their CEOs and chiefs to be able to um, um, make these declarations directly to the federal government to increase response time, to um, get resources where they're needed more quickly. So um, that bill was working its way through the through Congress, and um, all of a sudden, we started to get calls from FEMA and others that there was a problem in Maine. So, so we um, we went flew to Washington and started to meet with folks, and we had been meeting with our delegation all along, and uh, learned that that our senators were or senator was um, was a little bit. Uh, kind of um you know being being defined on the bill a little bit and not not really liking the tribal amendments so we tried to get to the root causes of that and uh found out that the state's attorney general's office had um had weighed in with them saying that uh, they didn't want this bill and they wanted it clarified that it did not apply to the main tribes so we worked uh, for months with them and their staff and felt like we had an agreement in terms of uh, keeping main specific language out of the bill and um, and really focusing on uh, getting this thing passed for all 566 tribes in America. Um, and then uh, FEMA's position was, we're going to work with all federally recognized tribes. So, but as the bill makes it to the Senate floor, um, Senator Collins entered into a colloquy with, um, and a colloquy is a kind of a floor question and answer thing that takes place um, for the congressional record and and basically um, asks questions of the bill's sponsor about the Maine Settlement Act, about the tribes of Maine. And at the end of the day, uh, the tribes of Maine were the only tribes in America excluded from that bill. Um, for what reason? I have no idea. There's two thresholds in the Settlement Act that have to be met. Um, there has to be a preemption of state jurisdiction, and there has to be um, solidified that it's not an internal tribal matter. Um, we felt like both those things were in place for us. Um, we were not preempting state jurisdiction within our own territory on declaration of disaster, and um, and how we manage our lands in those situations certainly is an internal tribal matter. Settlement Act even talks about that in other places, about our rights to manage our natural resources, etc. So, um, so we were really um, a little bit confused by all of that because at the same time, the Restrictive Settlement Act initiative is kind of moving through Congress and we're educating more and more people about the applicability of federal law and um, and how we still remain under federal Indian treaty law and how our rights to our fishing, to a lot of things, um, remain intact. And, um, and just because kind of the state has chosen to statutorily um, treat this document as a state law, um, that's not factual. I mean, the Congress um, delegated that plenary authority as one of three signatories. Federal government's still very much in play and also um, that plenary authority is with Congress and with Congress only. Um, what they've delegated is our ability to make changes to the document um, without legislating that federally. And um, of course, to date, there's really been no meaningful change to that document. Yeah, now you mentioned the Restrictive um, Settlement Act. Mm -hmm. what, what's that about? The There are eight tribes in the East that all have um, various forms of settlement acts and and what happens is um, you know they're all dealing with the same obstacles and, and issues in various levels as as we are and most of it around intrusion of states and in tribal decision making so um, the biggest problem though is um, 
that federal law is passed for the benefit of Indians. You take the Violence Against Women Act, for example. You know, our women have 10 times uh, more of a chance of being murdered in their life. Um, one in every three, you know, I can count my two daughters, for example. If they're growing up on the reservation or in Indian territory, you can bet if you have three daughters, one of them will be assaulted at some point in her life. Uh, 80% of those assaults take place by non-Indians. So the the inability through the Olomfant decision of tribes to be able to prosecute non-Indians uh, has created gaps in the systems and almost havens for abusers. So, um, and other jurisdictions just simply don't put the emphasis on these prosecutions as as we would in our own communities in terms of holistically trying to heal that family. So when you have laws like that passed, recognizing horrific conditions within Indian country, whether they're passed in the Tribal Law and Order Act for more jurisdiction to address the growing drug trafficking problem, um, whether it's the Violence Against Women Act to protect our women in matriarchal societies, whether it's um, all of these laws, Stafford Act to, to improve public safety and uh, all of those things, have, there's a lot of science behind those things on why Indian communities still lag behind in these areas and, um, and what we need for solutions. And for people to say that um, those laws are good for everybody else but not the Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and Micmac, um, I think is unconstitutional in so many ways and it's just inhumane. So um, to leave, you would see no other area of law where um, that would get legislated for the benefit of Americans and, for example, say, well, the Southern California Latinos, this don't apply to them. I mean, there would be such public outrage over that. It's just, um, it's not the way that governments should be responsible to their citizens. And, um, and we think that this is a huge, huge problem. And that's what the Restrictive Settlement Act initiative is about. Equality for all tribes, not creating two classes of sovereigns. What has happened is in the 60s and 70s, we were all fighting the same things right? Civil rights, we were fighting just to be recognized, the obliteration of our culture, our language. Um, and then as economics came into the picture, um, government started controlling various levels of access for tribes. And now you have economic disparity even within Indian country. You have the haves and have-nots within Indian country. You have, and that's created a litany of um, competing interests within Indian country and a the old divide and separate and um, and just by its nature has done that. So I think that it's critically important um, for this country to, in, in our states, to um, maximize the potential of Indian tribes that have been such a, um, well, it's this country's first peoples, obviously, but um, just so ingrained in the historical face of this country that... Um, I think it would just be a shame to continue on this more subtle but very much prominent um, termination policies that, that kind of exist, and they can exist in many ways, not just through genocide but through economic discrimination or whatever it may be. Um, now, you mentioned, you said that the, uh, the main tribes mm -hmm. or uh, the only tribes in the country excluded from uh, federal law when it's passed. Now, and you also mentioned the um, rest Restrictive Settlement Acts and there are other tribes. Mm -hmm. Now, do any of those other settlement acts restrict those tribes from federal law or are we indeed the only ones? We're indeed the only ones that have that type of language. The other tribes have various, for example, the Narragansetts in Rhode Island, they, they're... Um, delegation put what's called the Chafee Rider on the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, um, which prohibits them from gaming. Um, you have uh, various forms like Cushatter in Texas with, um, with their kind of Settlement Act low land issue they have down there that prohibited them from doing gaming. Um, again, very vague language, very much about interpretation. And you have, uh, for example, in Massachusetts, you have one tribe, at Mashpee that was recognized in 1998 building a casino this year. And you have a tribe on Martha's Vineyard that's been recognized for decades that doesn't have access, just 
by the nature of the affluent community they're in um, and, uh, you know, kind of the political powers that are over them um, and different language in their recognition. So you have all of these varying, and it, and it goes on across the country. You have these PL-280 states, you have 638 tribes, you have BIA um, federal Indian reservations where it's all feds on those tribes. So so there are varying levels of um, how governments um, can access things throughout the country and what the what this administration, the Obama administration and um, and Senate leadership has been trying to do is through these acts I talked about earlier is really bring parity throughout Indian country and, um, and they really see this as a problem and, and it is a problem and I think we live in it, we're mired in it here we understand the restrict, restrictiveness of it um, I just think that it's become such a normal course of business here in Maine that I, f- I find sometimes that I don't even think that, that folks feel like um, there's anything wrong with it so it's um, it's really a constant, constant battle here in Maine. And I think when you look up at Passamaquoddy and see, you know, 60, 70% unemployment, when you look, there's just no need of it. And there's so many things that the tribes can do in Maine through to help other industries as well. For example, through tax-free f- fuel sales. Um, you know, you think the trucking industry in this state could benefit from something like that? Well, I think they might be able to. And also, the, um, you know, through, um, through various tax um, breaks that the tribes get to bring manufacturing industry into their territories, um, to be able to partner with people like the Maine Military Authority and bring those 8A contracts and multiple manufacturing jobs to the state. There are so many opportunities, but... We have such a relationship built on mistrust and um, and contentiousness that's been, as you know, um, built on three decades of constant litigation and, and challenges over what we all meant back in 1980. And isolation. Exactly. You know, I mean, <clears throat> when we're the only tribes in the country that where federal Indian law does not apply, even, you know, through this various settlement acts, uh, you know, that is, I, I, that's outrageous, and uh, I think uh, it, it is unconstitutional. It absolutely is, and you have a situation where the federal government has a trust fiduciary responsibility to Indian tribes. Our mm-hmm. sovereignty is recognized in the United States Constitution. You have um, treaties don't get done with states, they don't get done with local governments, they get done with other nations. And that's the level we exist on. And so when you have that trust fiduciary responsibility, that's a serious responsibility. And um, the relationship with the federal government is not perfect. It never has been. It's a work in progress. But that framework is there for this trust um, relationship. Um, That needs a lot of growing and it needs some tweaking and, and everybody's working hard to that end. But state governments have no such responsibility. They have no such responsibility to um, anything in the, in the trust arena. As a matter of fact, this state challenges our very um, our very right to have the federal relationship. So we um, we're recognized as such. The federal government treats us as such. And um, so when you have a responsibility, it can't be just about saying you have the responsibility. So when I we were talking earlier. It brings to mind, you know, the legislative uh, process here in Maine and that we're forced to participate in. Um, That, you know, when you have um, a government saying, no, that's our responsibility because we want that authority. Well, things come with that and it's complex. You know, the tribes and its makeup and its wants and needs and and the... um, needs of its people are complex and you need as an institution to understand that when you become part of that especially when you take seats on committees like judiciary legal and veterans affairs that deal with um, you know tribal gaming issues etc that you understand that responsibility because it's an institutional responsibility if you're going to take that responsibility for lack of a better word to use but I think that um, with that responsibility comes 
becomes real things you have to do and you have to work as a sovereign to a sovereign. So we do great things like window dressing, saying we support the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Peoples, first state in the country to do that. We Native American Veterans Day. We have um, a lot of things like, um, you know, proclamations recognizing unique and distinct sovereign governments within main borders. But when it comes down to um, implementing that sovereignty and um, utilizing it, especially when there's disagreements, um, well, we end up in court most of the time. You know what? I think I think the the greatest example of that, and I'm going to call it economic discrimination. The greatest example of that in the past, you know, I'm going to say, since 2003, is the uh, the gaming issue mm-hmm. and how we started to we brought that idea forward when nobody in the halls of that legislature would even talk about casinos. We brought that idea forward and we all know what happened to it. Mm-hmm. And we're still fighting. I mean, even though we've got all of these gaming uh, uh, casinos, we got two of them in the state now and, uh, and scratch tickets and Powerball and everything else, we're still fighting. So what's your perspective on that? And, and bring us up to date on what's happening in that. Well, it's timely. The question's timely because we're just finishing up a legislative session, as you know, and um, this issue is front and center again here in the last couple of weeks. But just to back up, in 2003, of course, you know, going back to the Federal Beneficial Act and federal laws applying, courts have deemed that Indian Game and Regulatory Act doesn't apply in Maine Um, for a host of reasons. One was... um, you know, we all have to agree, as, as usual, and, and it preempted state jurisdiction. There was no regulatory framework for gaming in Maine back then in the 80s, and of course that's changed now. But um, in 2003, let's start there. Uh, as you know, we had the um, we had the um, referendum on the Sanford Casino, and on that same ballot was the uh, was the Hollywood slot. Um, racetrack, racino referendum. So, long story short, that that, um, racino in Bangor passes two to one, ours loses two to one in Sanford. So you say, okay, um, you know, hard to quantify what that's about. I think we have our thoughts on that. Um, But at the end of the day, we lose. So we start to go through a couple of years of reevaluating, um, I was on council at this time, go through a couple of years of really reevaluating where we are with that issue. Because I think one of the things that gets lost is people don't realize it's not just losing a referendum. It's the kick in the stomach that every tribal person feels when they turn on the TV and see an ad with a smoke-filled casino with kids sitting there coughing and we're going to expose kids to to that kind of environment um, teach them how to gamble, for example, one of the ads I remember, um, that, you know, to see things that totally go against the values of Indian people be perpetrated as something we're going to be doing and um, when we're all we're trying to do is escape centuries of poverty and uh, it, with one of the very few opportunities available to tribes at the time. So we, so I, I think that gets lost. People often, why is everybody so upset? Well, Everybody's so upset because there's no factual debate. It's really just about um, who the bad guys are, right? And it's always the big bad Indians are going to open up this casino and, and all this morality um, is going to be bad for our state. Um, so, so that facility passes and um, ours doesn't. So in 2006, as you know, you were our representative in the legislature. We put a bill in um, to... We said, well, let's focus on our on-reservation facility, make it part of a diversified plan, and um, and start with a reasonable operation. So we put in a bill for 400 slot machines in our current 30-year-old licensed bingo facility. And that bill started moving through the legislature very well. Um, got out of committee very well. We um, went to the floor, got over 130 votes, 26 votes in the Senate. I remember um, 
we had a very hostile governor towards gaming at the time um, who vetoed the bill. But and also instituted Powerball later. <laughs> good <laughs> Go <ahead>. point. <laughs> so he, um, so yeah, so it, it's been an extremely hypocritical issue. I think that the, so he vetoes the bill anyway and, and uh, we go back to the floor and we lost the veto override through some shenanigans that took place there by one vote, really, where the Speaker of the House actually said, we're going to bring this back tomorrow. This was close. People were missing and was browbeat by the executive office to leave that issue alone through multiple lobbyists hired by them. So anyway, um, that bill got, got killed in 2006. So in 2007, we regrouped again. And we said, uh, you know, it's the old definition of insanity thing, right? We're back again. And uh, we have um, we have a bill to uh, focus on what we know, and that's bingo. So we start to put a bill together based on electronic delivery of an existing right we have. So either through Lucky Sevens or through bingo itself. So we work with a lot of organizations, uh, gaming testing labs and, and many others to determine what would be the appropriate form of equipment for our bingo hall um, to simulate um, machine entertain, entertainment play, but based on um, the outcomes of the game determined by the games we're allowed to do now. So that technology was really developing at that point. Um, and so we put that in place. Um, 2008, we did a demonstration um, for, uh, actually 2009, we did a demonstration for the Attorney General, the um, state police, uh, members of the Legal and Veterans Affairs Committee, a whole host of people. Um, and we got an opinion back about five weeks later saying they were illegal. You can't do them because all kinds of Indian Gaming Regulatory Act quotes. Well, we didn't formulate the machine to IGRA because they've always taken the position it didn't apply. So we tried to formulate the machines based on um, the certifications and structure those machines based on the existing statute. So anyway, that was um, killed there. We went to the committee and couldn't get out of committee. So we came back. We were told we could go to the second part of last session where the legislative committee promptly denied our access to that, to that part of the session. So this year we brought our bingo-based machine product back to the legislature. It was referred to committee back in early February and never made it to the committee till about, oh, first part of May, I guess it was, maybe the last part of April for the public hearing. And leading up to the last couple of weeks, it's been extremely frustrating. Again, we were told to go do the demonstration, which we did. Um, members of the state police and the attorney general's office were there. Um, we had the machine up on video screen showing exactly how it would play, what the screens would look like, how the mechanisms worked, why it's a bingo game, as well as the testing reports um, that show it's a bingo-based game. And we also... Um, actually had two out of the three nationally certified testing labs on the phone um, walking everybody through why this is a bingo game, not a slot machine. Um, got back in front of the committee. Uh, state police determined that, in their view, it was a slot machine. And how that was determined, I still don't know. Um, so the committee said, well, we're going to table this for two days. We want the testing report back here. So we called. Now, keep in mind, the testing report and the certification was done back in January. It's not like we just asked them to make something up that day. Um, so they did it back in January. So we said, can you do a synopsis of the testing report hitting the points that these, this is a bingo-based game? I mean, this is what they're concerned about. So we really need to show that this is a bingo game, um, and they want to know that kind of in layman's terms. So they did a synopsis of of the uh, of the testing report done months earlier. This is a national, worldwide testing labs. They do all of multiple jurisdictions everywhere, and their credibility is impeccable. And they're recognized by various states. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, so, so we not only bring the testing reports to the committee, we fly in 
the vice president of Eclipse Gaming, one of the testing labs. And uh, so they, they fly in and they, um, they work in the work session. And basically the state police said that they didn't think they were a biased testing lab and that they think it's a slot machine. And despite what the report says or the science says, that's the position they were going to take. And so our bill for the fifth year in a row now has been carried over or um, sent to the next part of the session. And um, I just feel like um, at this point, I don't know what else we can do to prove what we're trying to do here, but this is the background on it. We have a 30, over a 30-year, five-year um, bingo facility. That was the first commercial gaming operation in the country for tribes. We had slot machines back then, as you remember. And those were taken away from us because in 1980 because of um, there was no regulatory framework for gaming in Maine. Matter of fact, they tried to take the high-stakes bingo then as well, and we had to go back and get that legislated, which is why we're under a separate statute. So, you know, the the issue really boils down to um, can you really convince people that are um, – um, kind of influenced to think otherwise. And I think that the gaming interests in this state now are not only entrenched, um, but they're solidified uh, throughout most processes. And I think that you have a situation where there's a lot of, you know, getting out of committee with 400 slot machines just six years earlier was no task at all. And now... I'd be interested to see what gaming bills have even made it out of that committee in the last four years. Um, I know none of ours have, and I know that um, we're continuously being challenged. The only opposition to our bill was Oxford Casino and Hollywood Slots. And this is you see this all over the country in multiple jurisdictions. Big gaming conglomerates, they, they bully their way around, and they, they stick up for their interests. And I understand that at some level, but I think that um, to suggest somehow we're a threat on our Indian reservation with no pass-through traffic, no hotels, no stores, no ability to build them there if we wanted to um, in terms of space, I think is, um, is not, not realistic. And it's, uh, and it's an inferior product on top of all of that. So in the same amount of time we've been trying to get a bingo bill passed out of committee, We've gone from a racino to a full-blown casino with many rights, including um, rights that have devastated, continued to devastate our bingo operation, like allowing them to open earlier on Sundays, um, you know, the, all the changes that have taken place in table terms games. of table games, yeah. et cetera. And, you know, a multi-million dollar um, brand new auditorium getting built. It might as well just be the showroom, right? It's... Um, so I, I think it's been good for the city of Bangor. I'm not knocking that. I think that um, I think that there's been a lot of positive things that have come from it. But how you keep a straight face, either as the casino side or from the government side, who now accepts millions of dollars of gaming money, and say that somehow this, these sovereign tribes with federal gaming rights, um, that yeah, we may have a say in, um, can't do it because uh, we simply have um, too much other interest going on. Otherwise, I don't know why anybody cares. The ironic part is that the original idea of a casino was ours. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Yeah, we, we, we've been pushing this issue for... We put the bill in in 2003. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was in the legislature at that time. Um, we've done a lot of educating that got people to a place of comfort on that issue as well. And, uh, you know, and another th way we contribute is if you think about it, we have a busing program. Our, our bingo structure is based on out-of-state patrons that come here, bring new money here, stay here. So when we're bringing in, like this past weekend, over 1,200 people per day, and, you know, 600 of them are staying in the Bangor area, and let's say half of them are going to the facility, I mean, that turns into quite a bit of money over the course of a year that 
and we're paying for that bus program. And yet we can offer nothing to keep our own patrons that we're marketing to, that we're bringing into our facility. Um, we can offer them nothing except to pick up an ink dabber. And, um, I mean, I guess they could still be chiseling it on stone, but it's... Uh, but be it's, careful, you might have to. <laughs> the next policy, you know, set. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious here. Um, of course, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, you have a state police officer that basically s- sits there and testifies that... Uh, this is, in fact, a slot machine. Where does that person, where does that state police officer get his expertise in defining what that machine is? When you have two national labs that build these machines and are certified nationwide, the testimony from other states uh, is, is well-respected, and then the committee is willing to uh, sort of forego all of that, and take the word of a, a, a state police officer. Mm-hmm. Now, being a former law enforcement officer myself, um, I have nothing against state police officers, but they're not experts in bingo machines. Well, that's that's exactly the problem we have in this state, is that um, and we've all operated, my family's been in this business a long time. Um, I have many friends in this business. I've We've vetted issues in multiple jurisdictions and currently are in another one. I just think that um, I have never seen in my life a a system operate. Typically, you know, legislature passes laws. They make laws. And you go out and enforce them. Um, I've never seen a system that relies so heavily on its enforcement people to create law the very laws they're going to be enforcing or but they're tasked with some some responsibility so let's look at it from that perspective so we have um we have a, a state police division that is tasked with overseeing high stakes bingo and um so where they get their expertise to determine um what's a slot machine and what isn't all i can do is, is speculate that what we hear And what we heard in the work session was that um, they asked scientific games. And scientific games is neither a um, testing lab or a certification company. What scientific games does in Maine... No, wait a minute. What what do you mean they have scientific games? (laughs) Well, scientific games is um, who the state goes to to audit and oversee the machine play um, in the current facilities in Maine. Um, The problem with that is they're not um, they're not certified to determine what's a slot machine and what isn't they're not a testing lab and what I find very ironic is that um, their their authority comes under the gambling the gambling control board controls all slot machines so they regulate all slot machines um, we're not under the gambling control board but if these were de- deemed to be slot machines we would be so I guess there's another customer, and at the but at the same time, um, Scientific Games also owns a slot machine provider, WMS Gaming. They they own that, and those machines sit on every casino floor in Maine, and so they're auditing in some cases their own equipment. And so I, um, that aside, I don't know how that. Um, makes them the authority in this issue in terms of um, not being a testing lab, but also they would be our competitor. Yeah, so it's like the fox guarding the hen house here. It's crazy. And then the only voice that gets in, you know, here I am a leader of a nation in a legislative committee um, out of respect for that process, talking about the machines, and we are being called not truthful, we are said to have bait and switched what we were trying to do, even though we have the testing reports, we have everything there, um, and it's a five-year debate. It's not like we just brought this up two days ago. And then being called not truthful, saying that this isn't the machine, you know, things like, oh, no, the display screen does determine the outcome of the game, which is not true at all. Um, the testing report shows that. Um, then 
when you do have the experts there, they get attacked. And, oh, well, they're biased towards the tribes. They're not independent. Well, they're one of only three in the country, and we're using two of them. You can go get the third one if you want. They're going to tell you the same thing. And um, so I think the whole issue really comes to um, when you're legislating, and we've gone through this argument a lot together, when you're legislating Native American issues, you can't simply ask the AG, are you okay with this? Um, are you okay with this to the state police? Because I really don't care if they're okay with it or not. I really don't care if um, they think this is that or that's this. What I care about is what does the science tell us? Is this a bingo game? And the testing reports say yes it is. And if the, it's a bingo game, then we're statutorily allowed to do that. And um, so we try to stay focused on that, but we get into what everybody thinks it is, what it looks like, what it walks like, what, and it's just, um, it's really hard to, because everybody's kind of looking at you like out of the corner of their eye, like we're trying to do something we're not supposed to be doing, and at the end of the day, legislators create laws. That's why we're there. If we wanted to do something that you deemed we weren't supposed to do, we'd be just doing it. So I think that... Um, it's a really challenging and frustrating process for tribal leaders of sovereign governments to have to, because there is no real government-to-government conversation. It's really, um, well, we'll decide, you know, and you're in front of people that, um, and I understand why, just from an institutional knowledge standpoint, just don't get it. You know, they just don't. And um, I think that there, um, there are many, many good people that are trying to understand, that are trying to be helpful. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think there is such a lack of dedication to um, growing this relationship and making sure that there is just an institutional mechanism that drives this at a different level that um, I, f I fear we're going to just be mired in these problems for a very long time. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, regardless of what we bring it's uh, we've done this for years now and uh, the culmination of that is this past uh, uh joint committee meeting mm -hmm. where you know you ask for 400 slot machines not oh, sorry bingo machines thank you <laughs> <laughs> 400 bingo machines and uh you basically get called a liar for, that's know, true you. and uh, that was really really the the downside of it all is that um we can't work from a place of just, um, like I said, the science, the facts, the um, what are the concerns and how do we factually overcome them. If the concern is we just never want you in this business, I don't know how we overcome yeah, that. I, I think that is. And, and I don't, you know, so what if it's slot machines or bingo machines? I think, you know, the tribe certainly should be allowed slot machines if that's what, they, if that's what they've requested giving the uh, the environment the ga the gambling environment now in this state it, you know it's obviously uh discrimination i think we're being discriminated against here well institutionally it's um it's it's an institutional oppression that needs to be um it it really just needs to be addressed it, it's an institutional again institutions are made up of people and i think understanding the role you're taking within those institutions to make real change is important yeah, and I think you know, shining the light on something like this for the general public is uh, is important too. Because you know, uh, I do think main people uh, certainly want to be fair, uh, and they need to hear our side too. And and to be totally frank, when I heard about this decision in committee, I waited to hear it on the news or read it in the paper, and I didn't hear or see anything about it. So it's sort of like keeping the uh, issue low-key and off the radar screen well yeah it's become it's become such a um, it's become you know all native american issues seem to be that way you know we don't get the media attention that on these issues that we should and uh, i think that you know if you look at if you honestly and objectively look at this issue you look at it from an objective point of view and you look at it over the last three decades and you follow the history, how you don't come to one conclusion would just be beyond me. And with that, um, I thank you for, for being with us, uh, Chief Francis. 
And uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. It was thought if you had the right combination, you could turn base metals into gold through a process known as alchemy. Well, it never really turned out that way until now. With this recent discovery, we have been able to turn ordinary sounds and music into heavenly jazz. We call it jazz alchemy. Don't believe me? Try it out. Tune in Tuesday nights.